What can psycholinguistics and deep learning teach each other? Recent deep learning systems have shown incredible competency in generating natural language, but the way they learn is quite different from how humans learn to use language. At the same time, there are some analogies between deep learning and human cognition that we shouldn't dismiss. So what can we learn from the ways in which deep learning models have learned syntactic structure from their training data? How can we develop AI models that are more human-like in order to study human cognition and linguistic capabilities? These are the types of questions that my guest today, Professor Tal Lindzen, is interested in. His computation and psycholinguistics lab uses behavioral experiments and computational methods to study how people learn and understand language. They also work on computational systems for language processing. In this conversation, we discussed his background and how he thinks about bringing psycholinguistic methodologies to deep learning, how progress in the field needs to be understood through the lens of what our goals are, how he thinks about inductive biases and linguistic generalization, and much more. This is the Gradient Podcast, and I am your host, Daniel Bashir. If you enjoy these episodes, you can follow us wherever you're listening to this podcast episode. You can also follow us on Substack to get regular notifications whenever we release a new article, newsletter, or podcast episode. You can also find our online magazine at thegradient.pub, where we regularly publish essays by the sorts of people I interview on the podcast. And finally, if you enjoy the episode, it would mean a great deal to us all if you'd consider leaving us a review on whatever podcast player you're using to listen to this episode. It helps more listeners like you find what we're doing and helps us bring in more interesting guests for you to listen to. But now, without further ado, Tal Lindzen. Professor Lindzen, as your website kind of states, I'm, I'm literally just stealing the words from there, you studied the mental representations that constitute our knowledge of language, how we use them to understand and produce language, and how we can create computational systems that learn language as efficiently and robustly as humans, which to me is a, a really fascinating research program. So I'd love to know how you got interested in the space of AI in the first place and how this became your research goal. Yeah, I actually ended up in AI in a bit of a roundabout way because um, before I even started in, in academia, I worked uh, in tech as a sort of a machine learning researcher slash software engineer. And when I was choosing a program to do my PhD in, um, I was actually trying to get away to some extent from computer science. Um, I uh, was looking to do something different and I ended up uh, focusing on more um, experimental human, experimental psycholinguistics for my uh, PhD, at least at first. I was doing a lot of um, cognitive neuroscience actually with this exotic machine called um, MEG. And that's what I was doing for the first few years of my PhD. But then gradually, as uh, time went on, I realized that the computational approaches to um, understanding 
the minor, the ones that uh, I find maybe more promising than the kind of purely uh, experimental ones. And the thesis ended up being a combination of uh, computational and experimental work. Uh, none of it was at that point AI per se. It was more like using machine learning to understand uh, what humans do in experiments. But then when uh, I was, uh, I, I graduated from my PhD and I was looking for jobs. Um, and then I found this uh, postdoc that in, in Paris that uh, was looking for people with a linguistics background that were interested in using that background to understand AI systems. So at, the, at that time, that was, I guess, uh, 2015. And uh, it was the, the beginning of all the breakthroughs that uh, we were seeing with uh, deep learning. Uh, and people were very impressed by what uh, these systems were able to learn uh, with basically you know, no supervision. At, at the time, it was just sport to vec. You know, it wasn't uh, ChatGPT uh, or anything. It was like very simple systems, but they were still uh, doing surprising things. And uh, they were looking for people with a linguistics background to analyze those systems. And that's kind of how I got more into the other side of the uh, AI, which is not just using... Uh, machine learning to understand humans, but also working on the applied systems themselves and maybe using uh, tools from linguistics, cognitive science to understand them better. Um, and uh, that's that's where it started. We'll be getting into many more details, I think, on how this looks soon, but maybe sticking at the high perspective, I, I'd love to hear you comment a little bit more on this intersection and how you think about it. And maybe as a prompt here, no pun intended. I really like this phrasing from one of your perspectives articles. I think you wrote this in 2019, where you sort of discussed how in machine learning research, we typically emphasize test cases that are pretty similar to training examples. And you're looking at, well, what can linguists bring to this picture? And so you said the construction of test materials that avoid confounds if we want to like isolate linguistic capacities requires close attention to experimental design. Paradigms and methodologies from psycholinguistics can be helpful here. So it's really like with that background in psycholinguistics and kind of understanding what what do linguistic competencies look like? How do we really test them? You're, you're bringing this experimental methodology and then sort of applying it to deep learning. And there's a bit of a back and forth there, but I'd love to hear you comment a little bit more on how you think about that. Yeah. So the issue that we have with um, evaluation, uh, I think evaluation has gotten a lot more sophisticated in the last decade. But when I was just getting into the field, uh, the way you would evaluate a language model, let's say a system that uh, is designed to predict the next word, is by having it predict the next word in a new text that it wasn't trained on and seeing how successful it was, um, how high was the probability that it assigns to the words that um, occurred in that text. But the, the issue with that form of evaluation is that uh, it's pretty easy to predict uh, the next word without knowing a lot about the structure of the sentence. Because in, in most sentences, uh, you can do pretty well just by looking at the most recent three or four words. And that uh, will give you, like, if, if you're able to memorize sequences of words, uh, you can do pretty well at predicting the next word. Um, so to really determine if you have a certain um, linguistic ability or reasoning ability uh, for the language model, you need to construct specific sentences uh, or 
find specific sentences in your corpus where it's really important to understand the structure of the sentence to be able to predict the next word. You want to ignore all of the cases where you can predict the next word with these like cheaper tricks, let's say, and focus on cases that uh, you know the only way that the model is able to predict the next word correctly is if it figured out uh, the structure of the argument or the sentence. So that's that's the kind of thing that we do in psychology uh, as well when we work with humans. Uh, we try to isolate, we try to create materials that are matched for everything else except the one thing that we are trying to compare between two different groups or the one thing that we're trying to evaluate this person's uh, ability in. So in one direction we've got here, this is the question of what can linguistic, psycholinguistic paradigms bring to the study of deep learning and getting a better sense of what are the powers and limitations of contemporary models. But you're also interested in this opposite direction of how can the successes and the failures of deep learning models help us understand how humans represent how we use language. And in this domain, I want to ask you actually a little bit of a kind of high-level methodological question. And it's sort of about this. I think that when the models that we used for language were simple enough, things like n-gram language models, you might find some interesting things there, but I don't think anybody would have thought that they really were representative of the full scope of maybe what's going on in a human brain. But now that we are seeing these deep learning models, I think that there is this general sense of people starting to question or at least wonder, well, to what extent are human linguistic capabilities really represented by the models that we have today? And the question this brings up for me is, um, I think Winograd articulated this really well, but a lot of people have sort of critiqued this scientific mistake that I think they articulate as I am trying to figure out the causal mechanisms behind some behavior, in this case, the use of language. I come up with a model, maybe a computational model, and this model produces that behavior. So like our, our language models today, and that language model might involve representations of its own or mechanisms by which it produces its behavior. And because as far as I can empirically test, this model achieves a desired behavior. So speaking human sounding language, I then assume that the subject whose behavior I was originally studying, so the human in this case, has the same internal model as the model that I just created to produce that behavior. In this case, I'm assuming that the human is just like the machine. There's a bit of like a, an epistemic barrier here, but it's, I guess, something that feels like a sort of potential mistake that requires really careful thinking. And so I, I suppose in using computational models, and studying what mental representations constitute our knowledge of language. How do you think about the role of this sort of, at least potential error in your work and, and about avoiding it? So the error is concluding from the fact that the behavior of the model is similar to the behavior of uh, people. So the error is concluding from that, that they work in the same way? Exactly. Yeah, I think that's a that's a really uh, good question. So I would, first of all, I would be skeptical uh, of uh, the argument that two systems work uh, behave in exactly the same way. But I think, so basically what, what I'm trying to say, that if two systems behave in exactly the same way, then uh, that's a really good starting point for uh, assuming that the model works in the same way as the human. 
In fact, there's very little that we know about uh, humans' internal representations that is not derived from human behavior. Uh, so it's not like uh, we have any direct access to humans' internal representations. What we know from neuroscience is very basic. Uh, our techniques don't really allow us to reconstruct the representations in the same detail that studying human behavior and what kind of uh, mistakes you make, for example, can teach us. So I I would say that the behavioral analysis is basically um, most of what we have to go on. Uh, so it's very likely, I guess, that if the system uh, makes exactly the same errors that a human makes, uh, that that is something similar about the representations that the system and the human use. At least that's most of what we have to go on. The one caveat uh, to that is that we should probably also uh, try to match the development of the system and the human. Uh, so this is an, an um, argument that is maybe sometimes um, lost. I think that it's much more likely that their representations will be the same if the systems are exposed to the same training data, for example, as, as a human might be exposed to. And that, that's a big uh, difference that we have at least uh, these days between the commercially available language models and humans, where we, we train our language models in a dramatically different way from humans. So uh, it's, it's likely that because of that, the representation that they evolve are uh, different from the ones that humans evolve. My hunch, though, is that if the representations are really different, there's going to be a behavioral effect of that difference. So they're going to make different errors than the humans. And in fact, that, that is actually what we're, we're seeing in, in the behavioral um, evidence. So I think you're asking a, a very good question about uh, whether you, there could be two systems with exactly the same behavior but different representations. The answer is probably yes, but uh, it's um, almost unknowable given how little we know about humans' uh, internal representation that's not derived from their behavior. I think the way that you answered that question also points to a couple of key distinctions that might be made here. One of them is, of course, when, as you said, you're controlling for the training data that is used and the amount of what's going on. And I think we're going to get into one of your works on accelerating progress towards human-like linguistic generalization, in which you make the argument that when we are, in fact, assessing deep learning models, we should be controlling for the amount of training data, the size of the model, these sorts of things. Um, the other aspect of it, too, though, I think, is that empirical question of what does it mean to have exactly the same behavior? And I think that maybe our sense of what it is to have that behavior has become more refined over time, especially as systems have become more and more capable. Maybe 10 years ago, a chatbot, I mean, people were pretty convinced by chatbots then, or at least some people were. And by today's standards, they are not very good. Today's are certainly a lot better. And now we can bring stuff that you're doing, linguistic paradigms and those sorts of measures to bear. And I suppose another kind of interesting thing, too, is then to what level of analysis of capabilities can we really think about this? I think, you know, the Turing test is something that always comes to mind, but that in its original form, people will kind of pare it down to, well, I'm going to have a chatbot interface with somebody for 10 minutes, and that's the Turing test. And that's really at least if you're to believe somebody like Stefan Harnad, not exactly what Turing meant. And as you kind of dig down further, right, when you 
assess the systems. Well, if you now have a robot, it's robotic capabilities, or maybe the microstructure of what's going on in there, then I think to what you're saying, you get fewer and fewer degrees of freedom, as it were, of what the potential implementations of this behavior could look like. Right. Yeah, I guess there's one thing that uh, is maybe not uh, clear from what I said before, which is that the it's not that uh, our models are so good that they're becoming uh, closer and closer to humans, and therefore we we can't conclude that there are differences in their representations. And in fact, what is happening is is in some in a lot of cases uh, we're going in an opposite direction, where the models are becoming less and less like humans, which I think leads to the conclusion that their internal representations are different from humans. So uh, let me give you just a few, a couple of examples. The language models that we have uh, right now, and maybe it's not surprising, uh, they have uh, much uh, more, a, a much greater working memory uh, capacity than humans. And what, what I mean by that is that you can, you can give a language model a list of 200 words and ask it to repeat that list and it will repeat it uh, verbatim without any problems. This is not something that any human can do. And uh, the models are able to memorize uh, very long uh, sequences of, of words from their training data. Uh, this, is, this is all from work that um, I've been in, involved in. So um, you can see that the model is able to repeat uh, very long speeches, let's say, uh, that, that have occurred in its training data a few times. So th those are, uh, you know, superhuman abilities in some sense. They're maybe not that impressive because we it's easy to write a computer program that gives you back a list of 200 words that you give to it. But it just uh, shows very clearly that the representations that the models are using are different from the representations that humans are using. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. I think it's good for models, to for computers to be better than humans. And so you don't want a calculator to make the same mistakes as a human does, but when, you know, multiplying two really big numbers. <laughs> but um, it does show that the calculator has a very different representations uh, from humans. Yeah. Thank you for clarifying that distinction. I think that's an important one to sort of bring up in the context of this conversation. And I guess relevantly, I do recall as well in the domain of, you know, if you are interested in making something a little bit more human-like, then maybe that's a separate enterprise from doing the types of things we might want to do with today's deep learning systems. But if your goal is let's make this a little bit more human-like, then yes, maybe you do want to put restrictions on some of these things like working memory. I know June Park's work on generative agents, for example, they were trying to make these things more reasonably human. And so their implementation of what memory looked like for these agents, they of course, I think relevantly made the same observation you did, that we humans do not have that in the limit, getting to uh, infinite working memory, but that there has to be some sort of limitation there. And maybe the way that we collect and retrieve memories looks rather different from just that sort of memorization that you clarified here. I'd love to dive into a couple of your specific research papers. So maybe we can flesh out some of how this tends to look in practice. And the first one I was thinking of was this paper on assessing the ability of LSTMs to learn syntax-sensitive dependencies. And so there was sort of this question of 
linguistic regularities. These are sensitive to syntactic structure, and you wanted to see if these dependencies can be captured by LSTMs. Could you maybe give a bit of an introduction to some of what you were going after here, maybe a bit of the methodology, how you probe a model for its modeling of syntactic structure and the conclusions? Sure, yeah, yeah. So uh, I, this is a, um, I think, a well-known uh, fact in uh, linguistics that you can't um, always model sentences as just sequences of words. So in uh, in most cases, the correct way to represent a sentence is as a structured entity that has, let's say, groupings of uh, words that are each called uh, constituents that are organized in a hierarchical way. So you have a big constituent that uh, is constituted by two smaller constituents. And it, it's not just a sequence of words. Uh, so let me uh, give you an, an example, and I'm, I'm just going to use the specific example that we use in the in the paper, which is uh, uh, subject-verb agreement, right? So in, in uh, English, if you have a present tense uh, verb in the third person, it has to agree in number with the subject. What it means is that if the subject is singular, the verb also needs to be singular. So we have the, the dog runs. Uh, and if the, uh, the subject is plural, the verb also needs to be plural, like the dogs run. So uh, you might think, well, it's easy to learn that because the dog is right next to the word uh, run. So you can just memorize sequences of words. Dog goes with runs and dogs goes with run. But it doesn't always uh, work that way because in some cases, you'll have a noun that's right next to the verb that's actually not the relevant noun. So it would be something like um, the dogs in the park run. Right, so park is a singular word, but that's not the subject. It's irrelevant. You're supposed to ignore it and know that the subject is actually the word dogs that occurred a lot earlier. So to figure out which, and sometimes you have many nouns in the sentence, and to figure out which of those nouns is the one that determines whether the verb should be singular or plural, you need to understand the structure of the sentence. And the structure of the sentence is not something that is written in the sentence. It's latent, basically. It's something that you need to infer from the, the sequence of words. So that is the premise, I guess, of the field of syntax in uh, ling linguistics, that uh, there's a lot of structure behind each sentence that's not literally represented in the sequence of words. In the discussion section for this paper, you said that a network that has acquired syntactic representation, sophisticated enough to handle what you're talking about, this subject-verb agreement, would also show improved performance on other structure-sensitive dependencies. So you specifically said pronoun co-reference, quantifier scope, negative polarity items. I suppose one thing I'm curious about in this regard is I can imagine maybe some of the structure-sensitive dependencies might be a bit more similar to one another in terms of the grammatical patterns, maybe the types of syntactic representations they demand in order to deal with them correctly. I was wondering if maybe you could speak to that a little bit, but then also what it maybe what it is, if this is really a thing, to have syntactic representations sophisticated enough to handle certain dependencies, but maybe not others? Like, are there, you know, levels of difficulty to this that you think about? 
Yeah, definitely. So the, the reason we started with a uh, subject verb agreement is that it's so simple. I mean, I was able to describe it in 30 seconds. And many, many sentences uh, have that dependency. So, you know, in retrospect, 10 years later, uh, it looks like uh, we were kind of lowballing. It was it's kind of an, an easy thing for the model to to do. But uh, we were actually quite surprised that the models were able to do that at all at the time. So it, it just goes, I think, to show how different our expectations have become from uh, deep learning models. That at, at the time, LSTM language models uh, were just coming on the you know scene, and 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 uh, no one knew what they were able to do. So uh, that's why we started with such a simple phenomenon that uh, is so pervasive. Um, so the, the, then there are a lot of phenomena that are a lot less frequent in the training data. And then it becomes a question of how many examples of this phenomenon do you need to uh, learn it? And are you able to learn it from the same number of examples uh, that a human is able to learn these things? Uh, and, and there's definitely uh, easier phenomena and harder phenomena, not just because of their frequency, but that's one, one big issue. Um, and I think since when we worked on that paper, many uh, other phenomena from people uh, in my group, but also and uh, a bunch of other groups uh, tested language models on many different phenomena uh, in many different languages. And the picture is uh, mixed, I guess. Some, uh, in some cases, uh, the results were um, less impressive than in uh, the cases that we looked at in, in the first study. Let's move to your work on RNN's implicitly implement tensor product representations. And so I guess this one was kind of interesting to me because you're looking at continuous rep vector representations of symbolic structures. And I suppose what, what feels so interesting about that is there's also this sort of long standing what are the capabilities and limitations of connectionist architectures versus symbolist architectures. And you had these famous criticisms, Fodor and Politian, sort of on connectionism broadly. And so you mentioned this hypothesis that neural network representations might implicitly encode compositional structure, which feels really interesting in that background. I'd love to hear you kind of introduce a little bit about this work and maybe how you came to that conclusion. Right. This actually ties uh, in with uh, something that uh, came up earlier in our conversation, where if a system uh, behaves in a certain way, then uh, you sometimes need to conclude from that behavior that it has a certain kind of uh, representations. So wh what happens in a, in a neural network, uh, the representations are always vectors. They're always uh, distrib distributed representations, they're, they're called. So instead of this, the way that you would think about a list, let's say you had a list of numbers and you were asked to reverse that list. And the list was uh, one, six, four. So the way that you would reverse it is you would say, okay, so the thing that was in the last position in that list was four, let me produce that first. And then the thing was second to last position was six, let me produce that and so on. And that is a symbolic um, algorithm because it uses categories like uh, first position, second position, um, and four and six, right? Those are symbols. Now, in, in a neural network, uh, the representations are all vectors. So you have just one vector that represents the sequence uh, one, six, four, and then maybe another vector that represents the sequence uh, 
whatever this is the reverse of it, 461. And you're supposed to, if you're a neural network that is designed to reverse list, what you're supposed to do is to take that vector and uh, as an input and produce the other vector as an output. So what we um, argue is that it's, to the extent that the neural network is able to reverse the sequence, it must um, at least implicitly have representations that reflect the symbolic structure of the list. So it's not that it's literally running Python code that has symbols in it, but there's an isomorphism of, of sorts between the vectors that the system is using to represent the lists and the symbolic structure that we hypothesize is required to perform this task. So in, in that paper, we uh, mostly Tom uh, McCoy, the, who, who was a lead author in that uh, paper, uh, we, we propose a method for uh, mapping a hypothesis about the symbolic structure that we think is represented in the vectors um, onto a set of vectors that we get from a neural network. And then we, we find this uh, very remarkable uh, correspondence between our hypothesis and the system's internal representation. So what this shows is that if you really if, if the network has a lot of evidence that it needs to perform a symbolic uh, task, like taking a string of symbols and reversing it, then it is capable of um, developing internal representations that are basically isomorphic to the symbolic representations that we think are necessary to do this task. Maybe to clarify by isomorphic, I just mean that there is some mapping between the structure of the uh, vector representations and the uh, symbolic theory that we have in mind. Right, right. There's a there's a representational sort of equivalence that can happen there. And I guess there's some important takeaways here too for us in basically what you were just saying about if I have evidence that I need to perform a particularly symbolic task, well, that maybe has some implications for if we are interested in a lot of work recently has studied limitations of transformers on compositionality. I remember the recent Faith and Fate paper that did some really good work on this front, I felt, then that maybe has some implications for the particular training tasks that we might look at. So you give that example of, of reversing a sequence as one. And I suppose, too, there are also, of course, sort of the architectural interventions. I, I think it might have been a few years earlier than this, but I remember Richard Soker and co sort of in Chris Manning's lab were experimenting with these hierarchically structured RNNs that had tree structures and looking at more closely representing what grammatical structure tended to look like. And so I'm, I'm sort of curious about when you were writing this paper at the time and maybe looking at some of these takeaways, what sort of lines of exploration along those directions, if any, that kind of prompted? Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. So the very simple tasks that we uh, looked at at that paper, the like reversing a list, uh, those are tasks where it's clear that the only way to solve them is by having some sort of symbolic representation of uh, which number was in which place in that list. There's no other way to do it. You give them on a lot of evidence that it has to uh, do it in a, a lot of uh, inputs and output pairs that it can only map if it figured out that there's some sort of symbolic structure there. When it, when it comes to natural language, uh, it gets messier because often, as I kind of mentioned before, you can get away with uh, cheaper tricks. Uh, 
in in many cases. So in often you can uh, fake it. It can uh, give the impression that you um, understand something about the sentence without really knowing which word occurred first and which word occurred um, afterwards. And and we we have a lot of work that shows that the models do in fact. If you just train them on natural language, they will uh, learn those tricks instead of the uh, structured representation that uh, will generalize in all of the cases. That you know you, you'll do well on 95% of the cases, but then there'll be the 5% where things will go wrong. So what this shows is that for some of the simpler um, architectures, they need a lot of evidence that the domain is structured to learn those structured representations. And if you don't give them a ton of evidence, they will get lazy. They will just do something dumb, you know, something simpler. Now, if you have an architecture like the tree structure neural network or other architectures that uh, are less lazy in that sense, then you can learn from maybe a smaller amount of evidence that the representations need to be structured. All right, that's 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 called a inductive bias, right? They yes. have the the learner has some sort of tendency to develop uh, the right representations that lead it to generalize in the way that you wanted to. So, so that's where I think the motivation for the more complex um, architectures comes in. Uh, they require less, less evidence to learn and generalize in the appropriate structural way. I think this is a great segue into your next paper on accelerating progress towards human-like linguistic generalization precisely with that note of inductive bias, because now the models that we are working with, transformers primarily, do not have very strong inductive biases at all. And so while they can become extremely powerful by pre-training, as you noted earlier, there is this mismatch between the amount of training data that a language model might need to achieve something that seems like linguistic competence versus what a human is, you know, where, where a human is going to get with less data. And so um, maybe to, to introduce this one, I'd love for you to describe sort of what you're responding to here, this, what you describe as a pre-training agnostic, identically distributed evaluation paradigm that you're critiquing. Yeah. So there, there are two parts there. The um, what I call pre-trained agnostic is that you you take two different models that are trained on vastly different uh, data sets, but you evaluate them on you, you compare them head to head, basically on the same data set, and that is problematic. It's the the reason it's problematic is that you're not giving the more data efficient model a chance to succeed there because the model that is trained on more data is able to succeed maybe using uh, certain tricks, certain uh, memorization techniques that the model that's trained on less data is not able to uh, resort to. And just to, to give a sense of the discrepancy between the amounts of data that the models are trained on, um, it, it's actually gotten a lot worse since I wrote that paper a few years ago. So the uh, you know our, our estimates of how many um, words a human hears before they get to, I don't know, college in the United States would be something like 50 million to 100 million, let's say. And then the language models that uh, we train these days, the big language models um, like Palm, uh, ChatGPT, and so on, are, are trained on trillions of words. So those are many orders of magnitudes more words. 
So if you uh, compare a human uh, or a model that's trained on a small amount of data to the models that compare, uh, train on a lot of data, the models that train on a lot of data can solve the tasks by uh, just copying examples from the training set or finding examples in their training set that are very similar to the example that they're asked to uh, do something with. Whereas humans and the models that are trained on less data are forced to use some sort of more sophisticated generalization uh, technique just because uh, it's different enough from anything that they've seen before. So uh, it, it might be, let's say, uh, we've worked a lot on uh, compositionality where you have, what it means is that you have a complex sentence that's made up of two simpler sentences, but they're combined in a way that is unfamiliar to you. So if you're a human or you're a model that's trained on 50 million words, the only way that you could understand that more complex sentence is by taking the simpler sentences that might be similar to what you've seen before and then combining them using a, an, an algorithm of combining meanings. But the model that's trained on 2 trillion words, it's very likely that it's seen that structure before. It's not going to be new to the model. It's not going to have to generalize to just use some sort of memorization-related trick. So that's why uh, it doesn't really make sense to evaluate the two kinds of models in the same way. The, the other ish, uh, thing that I talked about in that paper, the um, identically distributed evaluation, we talked about that uh, a little bit at the, at the beginning, where I guess um, the issue was that if you teach the model to do some sort of um, task by giving it a lot of examples of that um, task, Let's say you give it two sentences and you ask the model, does the second sentence uh, follow from the first one? Meaning that every time the first one is true, the second one also has to be true. That's a very common evaluation uh, task. So you give the model, let's say 100,000 examples of the task, and then you ask it to perform the task uh, for another set of 1,000 examples, let's say. So it, Turns out that usually when, when that happens, uh, the model can learn to perform this task in a way that doesn't reflect uh, what you would uh, want it to do. It, it will learn various properties of that data set. And because there is the same distribution in the training and test set, any, any um, pattern that it finds in the training set is going to also apply to the test set. So, that's the argument, I guess, that, that I made. I, I think uh, it's not maybe that controversial that the idea of fine-tuning a model on 100,000 examples of, of the task and then testing it on more examples from exactly the same distribution might lead to misleading uh, results where there might be some sort of signal that's correlated with the labels in the training set that the model can then apply to the test set. So that is actually something that has changed quite quite a bit in the last few years. So people don't evaluate models um, by fine-tuning them on hundreds of thousands of examples um, anymore, uh, which I think is great. One of the surprising uh, citations, I think, I, I remember uh, reading the GPT-3 paper and, and seeing, oh, they, they cited this, uh, this paper as uh, my, my kind of position piece as, look, now we're doing few-shot learning. Like we, we're just sh showing the model a couple of examples and it's generalizing from those two examples. So we, we don't need to do fine tuning anymore. So that addresses the issue that um, I brought up in my, in my position piece, which it does. I think it's great.
if I, I mean, I think it's questionable whether the models do in fact do zero shot uh, learning, but or few shot learning. But if they do, then I think that is that addresses the concerns that I had in that paper. But the 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 other concern, the like you know, training data size um, issue, uh, is only getting worse. I think. Yeah, it does seem that way. The few shot or, or the in context learning capabilities do seem like a, an interesting kind of case study here and. I know there's been some really interesting work recently on how larger models do in-context learning differently. And I guess one thing that may or may not be related to this, but that I've been thinking a lot about recently is how that kind of interacts with some of the work studying how in-context learning might implicitly implement like a single step of, of gradient descent or something. And whether, you know, as you get towards larger models and the way they do in-context learning, whether that's maybe reflective of sort of more complicated algorithms implicitly going on under the hood. But that's sort of like a, a line of intersections I've been curious about. On the question of, of training data size, though, since you mentioned this is getting worse, I'm curious what you think about as potential ways to begin remediating this sort of issue. It does seem hard that, well, even though Llama and Palm might be at pretty different scales, maybe... I can start restricting like classes of models where, you know, I compared the 70 million billion parameter models to the other 70 billion parameter models and control that in some sense. But I probably would like to have some way to compare the 70 billion parameter model trained on 2 trillion tokens to the 500 billion parameter model that is trained on maybe fewer tokens and think about how that stacks up. But that does seem fundamentally hard. And I think for a lot of reasons you've highlighted, how do you, how do you think about potential mitigation strategies, what that could look like? Yeah, well, so I think that is, um, it's an interesting question if uh, it's getting worse. So um, when I said that it, it's getting worse is that the, the difference in training data between, I guess, people and models is uh, increasing. I'm not sure that it's so bad for the applications that uh, uh, Palm or uh, whatever is designed to be used for uh, that is trained on uh, that many words. That I think that um, uh, the jury is still out. Um, I mean, one one thing that is clearly the case is that we we don't have the same amount of data that we have for um, English for all other languages. So uh, we can find ten trillion words um, in English on the internet, but we're not going to be going to be able to find that for um, Maltese or I don't know, like a, a smaller uh, a language that has fewer speakers. So. I think it's an open question how far we can get by training models on a huge amount of data from English and then using some cross-lingual transfer techniques to import that knowledge into a Maltese language model, uh, let's say. So it's it's possible, I'm sorry, there was some um, error. So it, it's possible that if we had models that are able to learn from less data, we would do better in uh, low resource languages. But but an, another way to do better on lower language languages is to improve uh, cross-lingual transfer. So that's 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 one thing. The the other part of so I guess what what I'm trying to say here is that there there are two goals here for having um, models that can learn from uh, less data. Uh, one is the more applied goal, which I think uh, you know, be, being able to learn in a domain where you have less uh, data or in a language that you have less data, that's a clear um, applied goal there. The other goal is 
the cognitive modeling goal. So that's uh, even if this doesn't directly advance AI, I think that it's very likely that we'll have better models of uh, human language processing and of the human brain if those models operate under the same constraints that uh, humans do. Um, so, I mean, there, there's a lot of work now that takes uh, GPT-4 or something or GPT-3 uh, and, and looks at its internal vectors and then maps those vectors into brain activity. Um, so I think that this, it's a really interesting uh, direction, but I think that we're going to get uh, better and better at, at modeling brain activity if we have models that are more similar, that learn in the same way that uh, humans do and with the same constraints. That seems right. I'd love to move on to another paper that you worked on, and this was titled Surprisal Does Not Explain Syntactic Disambiguation Difficulty to give a spoiler for the conclusion you came to. And your question here was sort of to what degree can processing difficulty in syntactically complex sentences be explained by predictability as estimated using computational language models? Could you maybe um, sort of break down a little bit that question, how you think about it, some of the questions like what is and how do you measure something like processing difficulty and what it means for that to be explained by predictability? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm glad you asked about that project. It's um, <clears throat> one of my favorite projects. So we we can only uh, measure human processing difficulty indirectly. So what, what, what we mean by processing difficulty is something like this person takes longer to read this word. Um, or maybe uh, if we track their eye movements, they will get stuck on that word and maybe reread it or maybe go back a little and, and re, re, uh, reread it again. So that's how processing difficulty is reflected in behavioral uh, measurements from human experiments. In that study, we actually used a very simple uh, technique called self-based reading, where we just have the person read the sentence word by word. And to move to the next word, the person has to press the space bar or some, some keys. And they only see one word at a time. And you can see that when a word is surprising, people will linger on it more than when a word is less surprising. So that's something that we know uh, across the board. Um, predictable words are read faster than unpredictable words. That's not uh, controversial. So what you can uh, do with that is if you have a good computational model of word prediction, like the you know language models that, that we have, you can take the predictability estimates from the language model and try to use those to predict human reading times. And that will give you a sense of how similar the word predictions are that the models are making to the word predictions that the humans um, are making. And then you can determine how much of the processing difficulty that humans uh, experience in different kinds of sentences um, has to do with the predictability of the words versus other factors. So let me, let me give you an, an example of uh, one of those uh, types of sentences uh, that uh, classically in psycholinguistics people have shown that uh, people experience a lot of um, processing difficulty in. So those are called garden path sentences. So uh, sometimes when you, when you say them out loud, they, they don't sound as confusing as when you read them. So it would be something like, um, the student read the newspaper was going out of business, let's say. So usually you, 
people will start reading that sentence and they'll be like, okay, the student read the newspaper, great. But then it turns out that actually that's not what happened. The student read a story about the newspaper going out of business, right? So you have one interpretation at the beginning of the sentence and you then have to uh, revise. That's kind of the uh, intuition behind those class of sentences. So what we did in that study was look at those uh, particularly difficult sentences and see to what extent the predictability estimates from the language model can explain the processing difficulty that people experience in those sentences. And the conclusions were that they really do not explain that processing difficulty. So to us, what, what that means is that uh, the, well, you can, you can interpret the results in actually a, a couple of different ways. Uh, but one interpretation that the language models are just not very surprised by those uh, words because they, again, like the issues that we discussed before with working memory, language models are just better at uh, people at considering multiple different interpretations of the sentence at the same time. So they're not as surprised as, as we are. Sure. And there's actually um, evidence that the better the language model is uh, in, at predicting the next word, the worse it becomes at its how well um, it matches human reading. So that, that supports that conclusion that, again, the, the language models are just um, so much better at reading than we are as humans with our limited capacity. Uh, so they don't have to uh, make the same compromises, I guess, that, that humans do. And they can just read faster, so to speak, though that, that analogy is very loose. This is the, the compromises aspect is really interesting. And you, you do kind of importantly note that the results don't imply or they don't license the conclusion that prediction plays no role whatsoever in language comprehension. So maybe there is some kind of role there. But I am really curious in the realm of human sentence processing difficulty, how you think about what other factors besides predictability might importantly be at play. And you sort of brought up this case of garden path sentences. And now I'm sort of thinking about my own experiences reading. And I think that it was maybe when I was first reading like Proust, for example, where I sort of encountered some of the most complex sentences I'd ever had to read. And he sort of throws all of these different things at you where you have these incredibly long descriptive phrases and then he'll use like a pronoun that's referring to something that's like a hundred words earlier and so you have to kind of parse that out and so i found myself you know it wasn't just prediction but i was sort of using these strategies as i was reading him of okay i take like a hundred words out of a sentence and just sort of like bracket it out in my mind and sort of you know think about okay the sentence starts here there's all this stuff that is describing something an important phrase describing you know, a person or some artifact or something, and then all this stuff that is going on over here. And so there's a sort of like spatial aspect of it. And so you were kind of mentioning earlier in testing, you know, human sort of reading or looking at one word at a time. And I guess that struck me because especially in reading, maybe if, if somebody is reading like really complicated literature or something, that is probably not going to be what exactly they're doing. They might have to think about, well, what is almost the spatial layout of the sentence? How do different parts kind of puzzle together? And so I'm, I'm curious how you think about that and sort of what is going on when we are having difficulty processing sentences. Yeah, I, I, I've had that experience a lot recently because I've been um, spending a lot of time reading in German. It's uh, one of my one of my summer projects. And uh, most German novels 
have extremely complex uh, sentences like the ones that you just mentioned with um, a lot of, I guess, what's called a center embedding where you have a, a sentence that kind of breaks up another sentence in the middle. And then you go back to the earlier sentence and you need to keep that in your memory. So it's um, interesting, actually, that as, as far as I know, that uh, if I remember correctly, I'm not an expert on this, that German speakers are better at parsing center embedded sentences than English speakers are just because they have so much more practice at it because of those insanely convoluted sentence structures. So I think that's a really interesting question that I, that I don't know the, the answer to, whether uh, people who are reading uh, novels that have very complex sentences or people who are um, used to reading in more complex um, genres or languages have different reading strategies than just the, the average person. And I, I think that sounds very plausible to me. I mean, I, I, I definitely catch myself, you know, that there's this thing uh, in German that, that famously that some verbs, um, you kind of split them in half and you, you put one half at the end of the sentence and the other half at the beginning of the sentence. And I do catch myself often when reading in German. When I see the, the first half, I know that something is going to happen all the way at the end of the sentence. So I go to the end of the sentence and then uh, read that and come back. Whether uh, German speakers who have more practice than me uh, do that as well i'm not sure but i wouldn't be surprised anyway i'm just i'm just speculating here that's not something that i've done any academic work on sure sure yeah I, I guess it's it's interesting um i guess another place this kind of comes up too is sort of the kind of analytic attempt to you know reduce language to propositions that you could represent in a mathematical form when you think about like nothing is X, then that sort of becomes this proposition of there does not exist some X such that P of X or something. And then so when you encounter certain sort of sentences, like, you know, Heidegger's kind of the, the nothing nothings, then I think a lot of people who are sort of really knee deep in that analytic tradition just look at that sentence and they're like, it's, it's totally meaningless because that was maybe their way of parsing sentences and putting together like what it is to mean something. But yeah, I guess that, that question of different strategies is really interesting to me. There was one last paper I wanted to discuss with you, and this was more recent, how to plant, plant trees and language models. And this was really, I think, maybe settling on some of the themes we've already begun to discuss about data and architectural effect, um, effects on the emergence of syntactic inductive biases. And so you sort of cite some recent work finding that pre-training can teach language models to rely on these hierarchical syntactic features. Again, something we've kind of discussed and you focused on specifically architectural features in this work. I guess I'd, I'd love for you to describe some of the procedures you sort of followed in this work and maybe some of the conclusions there as well. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for asking about this. I, I really like this project. It's a very, very recent one as well. The... Um... Uh, starting point, I guess, is the uh, discourse around uh, scaling laws in the language modeling deep learning world. And uh, what people usually do um, in that work is they will plot on the x-axis, let's say, the number of uh, flops that the model was trained on, basically how much uh, computation happened during the training of the model. Or there would be something like the number of parameters in the model, some very coarse-grained measure of how big the model is basically and then on the y-axis you would have the performance of the model on some task 
so what we asked in the in the that paper is uh, whether it's really just about how much data you throw at the model or how big the model is, or whether there are some properties of the architecture that affect how likely the model is to learn to generalize in the correct way in the, in the way that is consistent with the linguistic structure of the sentence and not with some sort of sequences of words that are not quite that are correlated maybe but are not quite don't quite capture the structure of the sentence um, as we, we discussed at the, the beginning like with subject verb agreement uh, are you going to learn something about are you going to learn to really identify the subject or are you going to use some sort of strategy that uh, is based on sequences of words that will work sometimes but will fail in other other cases so what we we did in that uh, study was to uh, we didn't actually explore different architectures exactly. We we st stuck to the same architecture, that uh, uh, transformer, uh, which is the architecture that all of the language models use these days. But um, we looked at uh, different shapes of the transformer. Basically, uh, you can have the same number of parameters, but you can allocate them differently. Um, to the depth of the model versus the width, so you can you can have the word embeddings be uh, two hundred uh, dimensional versus a thousand dimensional. So you you multiply by by five the number of parameters in the model, um, or you can multiply the number of layers by five, and and then the total number of parameters will be the same, but the uh, way they're allocated across the layers is going to be different. And uh, well, we found some uh, preliminary evidence, I would say. Uh, we're currently following up on it in, in a more controlled uh, study uh, that suggests that deeper models are more likely to learn the correct syntactic behavior than shallower models. If, if, you, keep, if you keep the number of parameters constant, it's better to have a deeper model than a wide model. So that's that's the the kind of experiment that I think is a little bit of, of, of an antidote to just looking at this uh, taking the a very bird's eye view of just the, you know how big the model is. No, it, it, it does matter how um, you structure the model. And my sense is that if you take a model that is quite different from a transformer, as you know, like the models that you mentioned before, you might get much uh, stronger syntactic generalization behavior from training on a much smaller amount of uh, data or flops, computation steps. You said the work in this paper suggests that transformers, when trained in cognitively relevant regimes, might be fruitful models for human language acquisition and processing. How do you think about what a cognitively relevant regime is? Yeah, so the, the other part of the uh, paper was, uh, I, so far I only talked about the architecture or where, how you allocate the parameters to width versus depth. Uh, the other part was we looked at um, how fast the model uh, learns to generalize in the correct way when it's trained on different types of language. So uh, usually you train models on data from the internet uh, or you, uh, in some experiments you train them on something like Wikipedia, like a clean website. And we were curious uh, what would happen if you trained them instead on uh, something like the words, the, the language that a child 
hears growing up. So we, we use the child directed speech um, corpus, uh, Childus, which is just like a collection of a lot of uh, transcribed uh, recordings from interactions between um, caregivers and children. And uh, we, we trained exactly the same transformer model on the different types of, of data. And what we found is that, surprisingly to me at least, it looks like when you train the model um, on child-directed speech, it actually learns syntax faster than when you train it on uh, Wikipedia uh, or on data from the internet. And it, it looks like the amount of, of child-directed speech that we have that's only, you know, we only have something like 10 million words in that corpus, which is even less than a child would uh, hear growing up. But, but even that seems to be enough to teach the transformer enough about syntax or, you know, go, go a long way towards teaching it about uh, syntax. So that's, that's what we meant by cognitively plausible. It looks like uh, there's something, there might be something about the simpler languages, the, the simpler language that's used um, when you communicate with, with a child that kind of uh, clues you into the structure of language better than starting from more complex sentences like uh, Wikipedia or Proust. <laughs> I did want to ask a little bit about this um, procedure that you're thinking about in terms of why does simpler language teach syntax more effectively. And I was kind of reminded of your earlier 2016 paper where you were assessing that ability of LSTMs to learn syntax sensitive dependencies, where you said something that felt a little bit different at first, but I think I can now reason through it, where you said that neural networks can be encouraged to develop more sophisticated generalizations by oversampling grammatically challenging training sentences. And so you're sort of looking at two different techniques here. Do you think of the acquisition of syntax then as a sort of different goal here than what we are trying to do where we're sampling simpler sentences in order to let the model acquire syntax more effectively? Yeah, that's a really nice observation, actually. I think you're pointing out a tension there that we should uh, resolve. I'm not sure. So it, what, what you're saying and what we said in that in that paper is that actually when you give the model a lot of complex sentences in training, it ends up learning more about syntax. So I think I think that, I mean, just like thinking on my, my feet right now, I hadn't thought about this before. I think what, what happened in that uh, early uh, experiment is that when we gave the model a lot of examples uh, that the trick where you just look at the most recent word and decide based on that if the verb should be singular or plural, you, you gave it a lot of counterexamples to that trick. And eventually it figures it out, or at least it does better than if you don't give it a lot of counterexamples. So obviously that's not so interesting because uh, what we really care about is models that learn from the normal distribution of sentences. You don't wanna have to give the model uh, counterexamples to the wrong rules that it might learn, you just wanted to learn the right rules from the natural distribution. So I think what, my, I mean, my hypothesis for why child directed speech might be more effective in kind of bootstrapping syntactic structure is because it has a lot of short, simple sentences and even fragments of sentences. So sometimes it will just be a noun phrase like the red balloon that will be the entire thing that the child hears. So that tells you, um, okay, the red balloon is its own thing. It's a unit. Uh, let me uh, think of it as a constituent if I ever see it again in other sentences. 
so that those those simple units kind of bootstrap your grammar induction. And if if all of the sentences that you see are these incredibly long, you know, the average sentence in Wikipedia I think is like 20 word long, then you don't know where to start. You know, you you, you need a lot more uh, examples to try to start to find commonalities between sentences and figure out that this is the sequence of words is the subject in both of these sentences and so on. Now I'm I'm really I'm really speculating here. I would like I mean we we have a couple of um, projects that are trying to explore the different hypotheses in, in this space, but I, I don't have anything empirical to say about it yet. Sure. One one intuitive thing that sticks out to me and kind of overlapping those two observations as well is in the realm of making something sort of biologically plausible or the way humans actually learn things. You brought up importantly that sort of bootstrapping grammar induction with these more simplistic sentences makes sense. And so you could imagine a training procedure that then sort of gradually becomes more complex. So at the beginning, you know, a child is of course going to learn with those very simple sentences you pointed out. And only later on do you hit something with more grammatically complex sentences. And I don't know what that looks like in terms of what it might imply for like the learning of representations and how that sort of evolves. But that seems like the sort of procedure that would seem like intuitively, you know, this is this is the way humans tend to get better at dealing with language. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that the uh, the student who uh, worked on this project down, Aaron Mueller, who recently graduated and is now starting a postdoc. Um, so he he's really interested in that uh, direction and figuring out the right uh, curriculum, I guess, for teaching uh, models syntax in the most uh, data efficient way, basically. And I, you're right that that's how humans also learn language, uh, they don't start out by just like listening to audiobooks. They start with these very simple sentences. And then at the age of uh, whatever, six, they start reading uh, longer and longer sentences, more complex structures. My last question on this work was a bit touching on the theme of representations that we've talked about a few times throughout the conversation. And your hypothesis for why depth facilitates this emergence of syntactic bias was basically that transformers generalize hierarchically on the basis of tree structured representations organized across layers. And so you did mention that you're starting to do work that is kind of digging deeper into all of this, but I'm I'm sort of curious about how you develop a hypothesis that, you know, we have a representation that is organized in this particular way, and then how you think about developing an, an argument. We discussed earlier sort of how behavioral capacities might imply that a certain sort of representation has to exist. And so I guess I'm curious to understand a little bit deeper on your thinking about the formation and evaluation of this type of hypothesis. Yeah, that's a really good question. So we, um, in that discussion, we were inspired by um, work from Shikor Murti, which, um, so I think you, you, uh, he, he would be the, the person to ask about this uh, hypothesis and, and how he tested it. So basically the hypothesis is that literally the, the, the tree is represented across the layers of the uh, transformer. So certain, you know, if this uh, span is a constituent, you would see this little column um, across the transformer that re- re- represents that uh, span. 
so you you would need if you have if the depth of the tree is let's say 13 you might literally need 13 layers to represent uh the entire sentence in, in that way and if you have less than 13 layers you're going to have to start approximating it and your behavior will be worse so i think that's that's the uh hypothesis that you you build constituents uh bigger and bigger constituents as you go um deeper in the in the network and shallower networks have to find different ways of accomplishing the same thing that are less uh, reliable, generalized, less well. That makes sense to me. I think this would be a good place to discuss some closing thoughts and maybe just for a couple of minutes, sort of, we touched on this at the introduction, but thematically just about the intersection of linguistics and deep learning and sort of how you think about how people who are studying the different sorts of problems in both directions, what each of these fields can do for the other, how to sort of think about all of this. And there was maybe one kind of prediction that you made a while back that I wanted to ask you about, where you said, in the case of modeling language acquisition, the best predictors of psycholinguistic measurements might turn out to be hybrid neural networks that explicitly model the structure of the sentence. Is that something that you still think might be true? How do you think about that? I think so still, yes. I think that um, we do need some stronger inductive biases than we have now to um, learn language from the amount of data that people learn from. So um, actually one, one of our um, other recent papers looked at the case of learning to form questions. And uh, we looked at child-directed speech and, and the, all the questions that um, we have in the English part of the child-directed speech corpus and trained the neural network to form a question from the uh, declarative sentence that it is equivalent to. And uh, the model was not able to learn to do that uh, from the amount of evidence that existed in child-directed speech. So, if, but if, if you give it a lot more evidence that it will eventually be able to do that, but it does seem that um, humans are more efficient in that way. Now that, that efficiency can come from a lot of sources. One of the sources could be architectural inductive biases, like having a tendency to uh, construct trees for sentences and then uh, perform all the tasks that you want to do with the sentence um, on that tree rather than on the sequence of uh, words. That's that's one one way that you can bias a uh, model to learn more efficiently. Uh, I don't know if it's the only way. I think we we uh, are exploring different different options there. I think maybe a a good sort of closing question here is one theme I really like that kind of goes throughout your work, and I think our discussion here is this question of well, there's sort of a, a distinction to be made between developing models with the purpose of something like cognitive modeling and developing models with the purpose of performance on some specific task or set of tasks. And I think that this really brings some clarity, I suppose, to what feels like the often confused is deep learning, machine learning going in the, the correct direction, which is sort of a, a question I feel like you can't really ask or answer without having some notion of, well, what precisely are your goals in, in doing that? And so I feel like the way you sort of articulate yourself in all of this brings some much needed clarity there. And so I guess I'm curious, just from your perspective as you know somebody who is now in this whole world of deep learning, where people are having these 
often, you know, they can be pretty vicious back and forths at times. Just how you how you think about maybe ways to consider these sorts of questions, maybe in a slightly more considered way and, you know, thinking about those aims and understanding what are the different sort of paradigms, the different goals, maybe the different um, fields of study at play here. Yeah, so I think I think that it's uh, important to keep, as just as, as you said, to keep in mind what you're trying to accomplish with a certain model. I mean, one one example that's really at the, like, yeah, at the, the top of my mind right now is um, logical reasoning. We have a project on um, logical reasoning, and there there are many uh, kind of famously humans are not very good at it. Uh, by logical reasoning, I mean things like uh, you know. Um, some um, actors are, are, are bakers, um, some bakers are chemists, doesn't uh, entail that some artists are chemists, you know, that, that, that kind of thing. That kind of classic, uh, it's called a syllogistic um, reasoning that goes back to Aristotle or something. And people are really bad at this. Maybe not at the specific example that I gave you, but there's some examples where almost everyone uh, gives you the right answer, even kind of highly trained people. And, so that really uh, makes you wonder, I mean, w- would you ever want to have a language model that makes the same logical reasoning errors that humans make? Like, probably not. I mean, it's not s- s- so clear what the purpose of that would be, other than that, other than you know, passing the Turing test, which is kind of a dumb goal. But if you really want to pass the Turing test, then you probably want to make the same errors that humans make. But, but for any practical um, applications, it's just not desirable, I think, for an AI system to have the same issues that humans have in, in reasoning. But if the goal is to um, understand how humans uh, reason, and you want to use models for that, like maybe you would construct two different models that implement two different hypotheses about how humans reason, and one of them will make errors that are more similar to the human errors than the other one, then uh, that simulation will provide some support, I guess, to the first theory of, about how humans reason. So that uh, then mimicking human errors becomes a good thing. Uh, but it really depends, as you said, on, on your goals. Sure. I think this is a really great place to end then. Well, Professor Linson, your work is really, really fascinating. Again, I think you bring much needed clarity and an intersection of really important disciplines here. So I want to thank you for being so generous with your time and for speaking with me today. Of course. Thanks for having me. This was really fun. That is a wrap, my friends. As I mentioned at the start of the episode, you can subscribe to The Gradient on Substack to receive not just this podcast, but also our articles and newsletters directly to your email. You can also visit us at thegradient.pub, where you'll find all of that, as well as more information about The Gradient and how you could even contribute if you're interested. And finally, if you enjoyed this episode, we would really appreciate your feedback. If you'd like to leave a comment or review, we'd love to know how we can make this series more interesting and informative to you. And with all that, I'll leave you until the next episode.